1: If you're a professional musician in this day and age, you need to have a website. So this holiday season, you're probably thinking of different ways to help improve your music brand. You might have some music to sell and you want to reach a wider audience. Well, I want to share with you something that I use personally called Bandzoogle. Bandzoogle is a website platform where you are able to create A website all in-house and you could actually purchase the domain name from Banzoogle this is something that I use personally because it helps enable me to reach wider audiences through my blogs through my YouTube videos through my music and more what's great is that if you want to sell music on Banzoogle they actually do not take any Commission it's Commission free they do not charge you to put music on the website and all the funds are yours to keep. If you're looking to help improve your music business, I recommend Bandzoogle and I want to give you a gift of 30 days free trial, no credit card needed. And you could also use my promo code Eric Violin for 15% off your annual subscription of Bandzoogle. And I'm going to leave a link in the podcast show notes on today's episode for you to learn more. Again, that's Bandzoogle. Use the link down in the podcast show notes to learn more. Welcome to this week's episode of the Violin Podcast, where we interview violinists from around the world. I'm your host, Eric Margalla. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're new to the podcast, we speak to violinists about their careers and we also get music tips from these amazing guests. And if you're new to us, it would be in the world if you could subscribe to this podcast. And also hit the bell notification so that way you get notified for when these new episodes come out. It really helps us out to create more amazing content for you. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Really great to have you. If you have been a fan of the Violin Podcast, I want to encourage you to leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. And make sure you leave a five-star review. You know, my mom always said that if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. It really, really helps us out to get five-star reviews so that way the podcast can be boosted for new audiences. And you're gonna wanna make sure that you are subscribed this week because Black Friday is just around the corner and I wanna make sure that the entire audience gets the best Black Friday deals. So I want you to be tuned in this week for the greatest black friday deals i'm doing my research so that way you guys don't have to i'm going to get the best deals off the internet for black friday and maybe possibly cyber monday so you want to make sure that you are tuned in to the Violent podcast for these deals now let's get into some violent news In the news this week, the Violin Society of America had its 2022 violin-making competition, according to the Strad, has concluded with 49 medals awarded to instrument and bow makers. The instrument judges awarded 28 gold and 21 silver medals in total, while the bow judges awarded six gold medals and no silvers. This is a 24th international competition that took place in its annual convention in Anaheim, California. And the among the big winners was canadian luthier mark schnur who received six medals overall also some big classical music news is Two set violin reaching their 4 million subscriber count on youtube as a fellow youtuber myself i understand how difficult it is to gain subscribers to believe in your mission and you know, Tusev Violin has made me laugh personally uh, with a lot of great classical music content and entertainment. So uh, on behalf of the Violin Podcast, we want to congratulate Twset Violin for the performance with the Singapore Symphony performing Mendelssohn's violin concerto. Now let's get to the guest of today's violin podcast episode. My guest today is the recent Indianapolis Violin Competition first prize winner, Serena Huang. And Serena Huang was gracious enough to offer her time with me to talk about her experience with the competition and to also talk about some of her favorite practice tips, some of her favorite practice habits, so that you know all of us can learn i definitely learned a lot from this interview some of this i already preach uh from uh previous violin podcast episodes and this is something that i also implement into my studios for my violin students so this is really incredible valuable advice and you get to hear from serena wong herself so let's get right into the episode Friends, I have Serena Huang, violinist, who just recently won the Indianapolis Violin Competition. And if you live under a rock, if you don't know what this competition is, it's a famous violin competition started by Joseph Gingold. And it's a competition that happens every four years. And I have the winner of this competition on the Violin Podcast as my special guest today. Thanks for joining us, Serena.
0: Thanks for having me, Eric.
1: So right before we actually got on the violin podcast, just recording this interview, you were talking about how you recently were in Carnegie Hall, just like watching uh, the Berlin Philharmonic perform their recent concert tour around the U.S. And you got to actually reconnect with one of the jury members, which so happens to be the concertmaster of the Berlin Philharmonic. Can you share with us that experience?
0: Yeah, um, it was really great because... um, when I was at Indianapolis, we were not allowed to talk to any of the jury members. Um, and uh, so during my whole what two or three weeks there, I didn't have a chance to talk to him. But afterwards, um, after the competition, we were messaging each other back and forth. And um, and he was very, very nice, very supportive uh, of my playing. And um, it was just so cool to get to talk to him because, of course, growing up, I was listening to the Berlin Phil and um have loved his playing and it was just so cool to be able to communicate with him directly and uh and yeah so then we went to the concert i went to the concert and i went backstage to meet him and he introduced me to you know just other members of the uh the orchestra and um i met some people backstage that i also recognized uh so it was it was a really good time yeah
1: So I want you to talk us through the whole process of you deciding to actually participate in the competition to all the way, you know, you getting into the final round. And we'll talk about some of the repertoire that you performed in each stage of the round. So talk us through the decision that led you to compete in this competition, because you have done competitions in the past, right? But I I want to get your take on that so that our audience can learn a little more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um... So I sent in my pre-screening tape in March. Um but I had thought about and you know planned on applying for it since like December or January, I would say. Um so this whole process is like a I don't know, 9 or 10 month long journey. <laughs> um and it was actually because I think what I heard was that this year the application for the Indianapolis was more they had more requirements than any other year. So they had okay, let's see if I can remember this correctly. They had Mozart Violin Concerto uh first movement and they needed two uh movements from the from Bach and <clears throat> I believe it was uh, one Paganini Caprice and then a full uh concerto so that and i think that's it um so that is actually a quite a large amount of repertoire that you need for just the pre-screening um and i think like what i said they this was the first maybe uh the first time that they had um had so many repertoires required for the application and um And also they had the requirement that like, you know, for for these in in between the movements, like for Bach, for example, or for the concerto, it had to all be done uh, in the same concert, in the same performance. Um, It's not something that you can do a take one day and then do the other movement the next day or something like that. Um, So anyway, the application itself was, uh, you know, there was a lot to prepare. And also they had, I think, three recommendation letters that was required as well. Um, but anyway, I finally was able to send it, uh, in March and, um, yeah. And, and I, you know, this competition means a lot to me because my family kind of saw this competition, like the Olympics, um, you know, it, being held once every four years and when i was like i don't know like nine years old (laughs) i would just kind of gather around with my family and we would watch the live streams of this competition so i i really watched it growing up um, once every four years it was actually like more exciting than watching the olympics because it was (laughs) violin so i like yeah of
1: course i mean like it's it's so it's so funny we're talking about this because like the World Cup is happening. I know, at, right? At night, it's happening. Right? <laughs> and yeah. yeah yes. <laughs> and it's yeah. so weird. First of all, it's weird that it's like in like November. Normally it's like in the summer, But that's weird. That's but yeah, but I do I do very much um understand that like a lot of you know violinists that I talk to, you know, competitions and you know, winning orchestra auditions are kind of like Olympics because they don't come around often and
0: Oh, like- they don't. There's so many factors that are involved too. I mean, there's just yeah, but you know as a nine-year-old when I was like just starting to play sort of um you know watching people that can actually play these repertoire and you know uh are ready to perform and all that stuff it it was it was a really cool learning experience for me and um when I was young I was like oh my god what if one day you know I could just be in the first round be really cool you know just to participate in some way um and you know, the last couple of times I like the well, four years ago, the previous time, um, I wasn't able to apply. I had concerts at that time. So um the timing never really worked out. This was my first time applying for Indianapolis. Um and I really want to do it because I think this would be one of my last times because they had an age limit. I'm twenty eight, so it's like <laughs> um I was like, I this I gotta try this, you know, this is my last shot. You're like, I'm getting old. <laughs> Yeah, I know, basically, From like all like, these youngsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, um, no, I I. that's that's amazing. Um, let's let's dive into some of this repertoire, because when I was watching your recordings, you know, you had Brahms, you know, second violin sonata, which is a yeah. dear favorite of mine, because yeah. that's actually one of the first Brahms sonatas I played with my wife in school. No way. She's a pianist. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really connected. And actually, when we were, you know, when I was prepping for this interview to, you know, to talk to you. I was like, oh wait, she played Brahms second violin on. Okay, let's check this out. And then she was like, oh, my wife was like, oh, well, wonderful colors. Oh, that's so great. Oh, <laughs> I love this. Right. <laughs> oh so, God, so sweet. Yeah. And then and then you also played Boxy Major, which I definitely yeah. want to touch upon also because that's like our Gant fugue. I know, I know oh, how difficult exactly. that fugue is, but I want, I want, I can see the stress on your face already. Just like just reminded of that fugue. <laughs> <few>, uh, <laughs> but yeah. I I do want to talk about the the repertoire because the is do you select the repertoire or does the jury members like once you finish the pre-screening do they like select the repertoire for you and you kind of have to present it during the competition how does that work
0: yeah it's a good question um so and and this is actually quite standard for most competitions uh so the pre-screening even the pre-screening they have pretty standard like a specific repertoire they require Mm -hmm. um but once you get to the competition um they are quite specific about what they want. Um, sometimes, so most of the time, actually, I should say, let's say if you're playing Bach, they give you a list of Bachs that you are allowed to choose from. Um, mm-hmm. And Paganini is different. Paganini, you can just choose any Paganini. Um, and I think you could also choose Last World of Summer by Ernst and also Milstein's Paganini or something. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, either way, um, most of the time it's like, okay, here's a composer. And this is a list of uh, repertoire that you're allowed to choose from. Um, So in the second round, let's say Brahms Sonata, um, it was the Romantic Sonata category, I believe. So it was a list of Romantic Sonatas that you can choose from. And I chose Brahms Sonata number two, um, and you could choose, I mean, the list probably, I would say is like, I don't know, 10 Sonatas or something, and you could choose from that. Um, And again, same thing with the final round concerto uh, you could choose, they give you a list and the Mozart concerto. So, um, it's in a way there is freedom, uh, because there is, you know, they give you many, many options and you choose the one that speaks the most to you. Um, but at the same time, it's not like you can just play anything. There's also a a certain amount of time that they want you to play. You know, they, uh, And there's also a maximum where you're not allowed to go over that certain time. Um, But so it's freedom in the sense that you can choose, you know, from what piece from this particular composer they require uh, to play from. But um, yeah, it's it's not like you can just, you know, decide your own program completely either. Uh, So I think this was actually quite a good balance uh, in terms of the freedom to choose what I wanna play and also like uh, the the kind of composers and works and styles that they wanna hear. Um, But I think that's typically pretty uh, standard for most international competitions. Um, I think I know maybe like one or two competitions that are like, okay, play half an hour of whatever you wanna play kind of thing. Um, But typically it's more like this kind of procedure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's definitely certain parameters to the competition. It's not yeah. like, you know, you're kind of like out in limbo. You have to kind of choose whatever. I I kind of like that. You know, you have the yeah. options. You're given the list. This is what the jury wants to hear in this competition. And then, I mean, you said 10 sonatas. So that's, that's a healthy selection of like what yeah. you can do. It's, not, it's yeah. not like three or four and everybody has to play the same thing. You know, oh, you have...
0: Cool. Not which which all.
1: I which I appreciate because um it's not so much about like the technical ability and like trying to micromanage the musicality of like one or two specific sonatas that the that the cup, uh, competition you know finalists choose. It's like okay yeah I have options which is really nice.
0: Yeah exactly um, and also they talk about um, remember Jamie Laredo when he's the head of the jury uh, he was talking about they chose this, this repertoire because they want to see different uh sides of you as a musician um so because let's say they say okay play anything you want for 30 minutes you could play 30 minutes of one style you know but they want to make sure that they hear all sorts of different styles different periods of time different composers so that's why they have okay here's a romantic sonata here's a classical sonata here's you know all of that kind of stuff
1: yeah. That's awesome, and I I want to dive into you know you, we just talked about Brahms, but you also mm-hmm. we have the three Bs that you perform Beethoven, yep, Beethoven's the performs, yeah, the Brahms, and then the Bach, right? And so, Bartok. And <laughs> Okay, yes, of course, yeah, of course, the Bartok. <laughs> yeah, so four Bs. <laughs> yeah, there
0: you go.
1: <laughs> was, it, was that was, that was probably not a conscious decision, right?
0: <laughs> I well, you know, I used to when I was young, I was. Always like talk about like the four B composers and these were the four. So I guess it's not really a, a conscious decision, but these are like my favorite composers. So of course, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> so um, I want to dive into this Bach major because yeah, yeah. normally on most competitions they don't require you to perform the entire sonata. They normally as like if it's a sonata, it's just like the first movement and then the fugue, you know. And for those of, for those of you who are not familiar with the Bach. Sonatas and partitas, highly recommend that you, that you listen to them. I know we have some beginners who listen to violin podcasts, some amateurs and also some professional violinists um, and teachers, yeah. but you know, the boxing major is very dear to me because, um, you know, I remember back in school, I was, you know, my teacher told me, you're going to memorize this see, major fugue. you. have a good memory? You're going to perform it. I go, wait, it's like seven, eight pages long. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh and, you know, yeah. and, um, I know how difficult it is. So, and not to mention, if if I read correctly, um, you also had COVID during the during the pandemic, yeah. uh, not the pandemic, but during the competition. Yeah. So you played the boxing major with COVID and recovering from COVID. So talk us through what was going on when when you found out you got the test result of COVID and you have to perform this competition. Not to mention this fugue, which is just. gargantuan movement yeah
0: no um (laughs) it was i mean this whole journey was just so crazy um but i never got COVID this entire time when this whole pandemic started um and the first time i get it would be opening ceremony day of indianapolis of course (laughs) um (laughs) yeah and i mean i don't know it probably got it at the airport or something even though i was wearing my mask and being cautious the whole time it just it just You just don't know with these things but anyway um yeah the day before I tested I started getting like a scratchy throat and I was like well maybe it's because I had spicy food the day before and I was like there's yeah probably that's what happened just it didn't even cross my mind that this could be a possibility because I know I was being cautious and I don't know just I haven't gotten it at all so I just I just didn't think about it um And then on opening ceremony day, we all because there was supposed to be like a nice gala and um, we were all supposed to get dressed up and go and have a nice dinner with everyone. But um, and early that day, I was supposed to rehearse with my pianist. Um, This was on a Friday and first round begins on Sunday and goes all the way to Wednesday, just to give you a little bit of a reference. Um, And on Friday. I was like wait I felt really warm last night and I think I might like my temperature probably rose so I was like let me just double check so I took the COVID test and um and yeah lo and behold <laughs> it was positive and I freaked out I mean I was my the first thought that came to my mind was whether or not I just have to go home now because um there's yeah I, I just my worst nightmare would be like, okay, I had prepared like nine months for this competition and I get COVID and then I have to go home. Um, so I called the executive director, Glenn Kwok. And I said that I have COVID and I was like begging, I was like, can I please still play though? Like, please don't send me home. Um, and so this was Friday and he said, well, you just basically made the cut because you need a five day quarantine. Um, and so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, I'm sorry, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Wednesday was the last day of uh, first rounds. So he basically moved me to the last participant um, of everybody. So I played Wednesday night at like 7pm. And so that would have just fulfilled the five day requirement. And
1: <laughs> that um, must have been mentally exhausting for you, for, for, I can only imagine that you have all this, you know, pressure of getting ready for nine to 10 months. And then you're the, like one of the last participants of the first round, man, that, that was, um,
0: yeah, um, that's next
1: I, level, but no good, really awesome. You know, it just shows how, like, you have to be mentally fit for these kind of competitions too, because anything can kind of go your way. And that's cool. something that I teach my students, Trina, that like, one day, you're not going to have the luxury of warming up, right?
0: <laughs> oh, my God. You know, you know, and I yeah. want
1: you to speak to the student. I want you, I, please, I want you to speak to my students right now how important it is to be prepared all the time <laughs> because <laughs> this is like this is like proof.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. This is uh, actually a really good point because um, preparing, especially for this first round, because I know, I, personally, I felt that this first round was in many ways the most demanding round. I mean, playing the the two movements of the Bach and the Paganini, two Paganinis and the Mozart sonata. Um, you know, and also I included a short encore piece. Uh, but it was mainly like the unaccompanied works back to back that was like with no rest at all. It's just like it's so demanding and you need so much concentration. In order to prepare for it, I woke up at like 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. Um, for the week before the competition, and without warming up, just playing through the entire first round. Um, and I would just, yeah. So the point of that is to not warm up to play and to see where you're at because uh, that's where your real like level is. Because when you warm up and and your violin sounds good after a couple hours, like that's not as accurate. It's like okay, if without warming up you can sound like this. Uh, and you try to raise that bar, then you know that when you're actually performing with a little bit more adrenaline and you probably would have warmed up a little bit, um, then it's only going to add from there. So, but to always raise that bar to know where your like basic line is with these pieces, I tend to find it very helpful to just kind of run it through, run through these pieces, especially before like a big performance, run it through and in a, in a situation where it feels where it feels very uncomfortable and if you can play well under those circumstances then you'll be okay you, you it's also it builds your you know confidence with these pieces too um then you know you know that at, at a competition or at a big performance or something you're going to feel a lot better because you've already put yourself in these uncomfortable situations um because a lot of times in, in like a practice room like no one's there judging you. Uh, no one's there listening to you. If you no. sound bad, it's okay. You know, like you're mm-hmm. you're super comfortable.
1: <laughs> but actually, it's uh, funny. I actually I had a question. Um, you know, for you, did you have lessons or did you have like a specific coach in preparation for this for this competition? Or was this was this half and half? All you guide us through that.
0: Um, this time was a little different. Yeah, uh, because the previous competitions that I had done. I were i was all I was in school through all of those. this is the first competition I did that I wasn't in school um so and during the pandemic and everything it was difficult for me to you know find a place and time to see my former teachers as well um, and so basically this competition I had to do everything on my own <laughs> I had to prepare everything by myself um and there were definitely challenges to that because I had to kind of be my own teacher, and um, that was such an important learning experience for me uh, to know that to have my own standards, right? To to know what I think is good enough, not what my teacher thinks is good enough, but what I think is good. <laughs> um, and if I find an issue, I have to figure out how to, you know, how to how to work it through, how to find a solution to it, um, and not be dependent on somebody else. And a lot of times, actually, I thought about what my teachers had taught me. Um, and and I often think that's what like great teachers do, right? They teach you to become your best teacher. And um, I think my teachers had given me so many tips and tools and ways of um, looking at music in a way that when I was on my own, I kind of put all of those uh, ideas and thoughts and um tools and techniques uh into you know my mind and I kind of picked and choose. I was like, wait, I remember when we worked on this in I don't know, uh in a Mendelssohn concerto. And then I was like, I'm gonna apply it for this, you know. So I was kind of putting all of these this knowledge that I learned from school together and making it my own. Um so this was my first time uh, you know, preparing all of this repertoire. Uh On my own, of course, there are some pieces that I had played before I learned when I was back in school, so there are uh, some influences from teachers and things like that, Uh, but there were also pieces, for example, the Brahms Sonata number two, I learned completely on my own, I had no lessons from beginning to end, Um, Hmm. so that one was like really, really uh, all the musical styles and stuff was just formed by me basically and, and I mean of course I, I, so that
1: I, was that was a pure Serena Huang interpretation like that's something that you studied. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 of course no but no I really I really admire that Brahms because um, you, you actually challenged me while I was watching I'm like oh she did such a unique bowing there I'm like I think I might <laughs> I might, might want to do that too and I think that's also like the point of competitions it's kind of to see what's possible to see yeah. what to see what's possible and to kind of use like an old classic and to, you know, how does this piece sound in 2022? Back yeah. compared to how does this piece sound back in the 1950s? I think that's, yeah. it's an evolution of our interpretation. As we gain more knowledge, we get more scholarship towards these right. towards right. these pieces. So I want us to talk about the tips and tools and tricks for, you know, violin playing towards the end of the podcast. But I do want to dive into some of the other things that you have you know worked on in your professional violin career such as you know the TED talk that you've done many years ago. Yeah. I want you to share with us what this TED talk was about and you know why this particular topic really um, inspired you to do this TED talk.
0: Yeah definitely um, so well this was many many years ago. Um, yeah. I was 11 years old uh, and when they invited me to um, give a talk at TED and um, at that time was an 11 year old i had no idea what TED Talk was. <laughs> <but> <laughs> I have to admit that I was like, okay, so I'm gonna go there and perform, I guess. Um, but, I, but then I realized that, like, oh wait, people like actually talk here. Like, you don't just play; you have to say something, also. Um, so you have to I, sound smart. Yeah, it, it sound smart. And I was like 11 years old, so I was like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> um, and so I was kind of like talking it through with my dad, and I was like, all right. These people are smart. What can we? What can we offer on the daily? Like, um, so, we thought thought about what TED stood for. It was technology, entertainment, and design. And I thought that it might be fun to kind of relate violin and violin playing to these three aspects. Um, and so we kind of <laughs> came up with a little speech. Uh, that like the first paragraph was you know uh, was technology. Uh, how the instrument works, mm-hmm. and the next part was the entertainment um what we're trying to convey when we're playing, and the design, which is like um you know what it's uh how it how how the instrument itself is designed and how the performances are designed and things like that. so I was just kind of like making little uh you know re- um, trying to make these connections and stuff, and I also did some playing um and this was the first time I ever spoke in front of an audience really um and i had <laughs> I had no skills with public speaking whatsoever, but I will say um when i was when I got on stage and there was like i don't know fifteen hundred people. Um, in the audience.
1: That's intimidating for an eleven-year-old.
0: Yeah, I was like about to pee my pants. Like I was like, <laughs> I was like, what
1: is happening? No one told me this is what I signed up for. Oh my gosh, <laughs> um, that's intimidating so, for an eleven-year-old. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: but at the same time, like I remember after, like I, I felt okay playing in front of all these people, but then I got ner- like worried about speaking in front of these people because I didn't have that like that experience, um but. I remember after my first piece people were like cheering and I was like wait they like me and then I got like super excited and I kind of like forgot that I was like you know gonna be talking to all these people so anyway it it became uh actually a really fun experience and I ended up not feeling nervous a couple minutes in which is good um but and I was so surprised by how many uh views in this video uh, ended up having after i did it because to me it was just like i was just doing a performance and i had to talk but i didn't think about like the setting or like what i was you know performing on like this like what ted talk really meant um but because i mean i was 11 years old but i did also attend some other talks that year before my turn like i went to al gore's um talk about global warming um
1: Oh, yeah, that's a that's a classic one.
0: That's a cl- I was there in the audience, like,
1: Whoa.
0: probably like question marks all over my mind. But it's still like I was like, wait, that's all gore. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I did attend some of the uh, the talks and stuff. Um, but yeah, no, like- that no,
1: you, you touch up. you touched upon like a lot of things that oftentimes musicians forget or don't want to do like public speaking. You know, I find myself doing a lot more public speaking, especially like, you know, having so many students, you know, you're talking to with parents, you have to make sure you present yourself, you know, with with knowledge, and you have to know the piece. And I always, you know, I mentioned that to my students, that you have to be able to understand where this person, where this composer is coming from, you know, like, at least know the basis of like, where he or she was born. You know where. You know where in the world was this composer located? At these like those basic minimums. Because what's so great about music is that music and music history really tie in together, and that's something I'm passionate about. My wife is a theory person. I I remember doing like Schenkerian analysis in oh, like yeah. grad school, and it's just like she's she's the one to do that. But I I thrived in like my Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven seminar. That was my that was oh, okay.
0: My okay, I got you
1: yeah so that was was my thing so I I always talk about (laughs) and you know embarrassingly when you know teachers ask uh, when students ask me oh can you teach me like you know like what the course I'm like I can do like the basics yeah (laughs) I can teach you what like a half note is (laughs) (laughs) like five you know you know and then like you know you have like these students who are like you know during the why phase like why why is that that? I'm like I need like an hour to explain this concept before I do that concept (laughs)
0: It's like, like scared and cringing every time they say why. Like don't ask why for this one. I don't know this one, but
1: <laughs> yeah, like I'm just like I'm like sweating a little bit, you know. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm texting my wife, what do I do? <laughs> but so um, funny. no, it's it, it's fun. Uh, do you actually do you teach at all? Um, outside of your performance engagements or um, so normally performing?
0: for these concerts, uh, for concerts that I've been doing, they also schedule master classes. Um, and oh, so nice. Okay. I've been doing that uh, quite a bit um, in the last couple of years, and I have given some private lessons, but not like a regular studio that I that I normally do. Um, and I, I'm well aware that masterclass teaching is completely different from private lessons teaching. Like I just thinking about, I mean. I mean, private lesson teaching is so difficult. Masterclass, I can just like, okay, here's a point one, two, three, work on it yourself, bye, you know, like,
1: pay <laughs> okay, things bye. Yeah, right.
0: yeah, it's like, I don't know, half an hour per person, just say whatever, and they leave, and, you know, they have a good life, you know? Well, it's not
1: whatever. It's just, it's your, it's your it's Serena Hong's advice. It's yeah. valuable advice. <laughs> I can so just give kind yourself kind of throw
0: some credit. You, like, for, and, it, and for private lesson teachers, like, you actually have to work through these issues, um, and it's, in a long period of time and have a good plan for your students and things like that. I just admire you guys so much for doing it. Um, That's something that takes a lot of experience, I'm sure. So,
1: yeah. I I feel like 50% of it is actual teaching. I feel like 50% of it is actually just like managing how the student feels on a particular day and how to manage where they are in life and try to continue encouraging them you know some yeah. some years are rougher than others and some days and some pieces are rougher than others as i'm sure you know right and i think yeah. all of us as teachers try to you know try to cater to the needs of the student i think that's, that's really that's really important for us as teachers and for any teacher who's listening to violent podcasts right now i know we have to continue to be reminded especially in this crazy world that we live in right i think it's always nice to be reminded that like oh this person this student however old like my youngest is five. Right, like she's a pre-twinkler, and yeah. she doesn't know what's going on in the world. But like, <laughs> I know that I can teach her, like you know, having a bendy pinky makes a beautiful twinkle sound. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> basics, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, but I do want to dive into now, like some of your philosophies to you know the violin, your approach to the violin, how you practice, and how do, how does Serena Huang practice? You know, like what what are some of the things that um you have done in the past, or something that you're like actually changing as you get older like tell yeah. tell us about that
0: um yeah well wow, that's a that's a big topic um I think so when I was younger I had a teacher that he kind of practiced with me so he built a lot of technical foundations for me which I am like eternally grateful for because I think these foundations really affect how you play basically every note on the violin right <laughs> um, yeah so we did the Carl Flesch scale system. We went through a bunch of Sevchik books, like the Sevchik double stops and the shifting. Love and, it. Yeah. All Every student steps.
1: listening. Yeah. Do it. I told if you,
0: you so. It's like, you know, it's kind of like eating your veggies. You know, like no one really like loves doing that. Well, yeah, if you if you don't for like anyone
1: it, who's you. listening, my hands are in the air because yes. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. No, I mean
0: I'm not I'm not just saying that I mean I truly truly think that um especially when you're younger and you are developing uh you know your fundamentals for playing the violin um this is going to it's kind of like it you're ba- you're building such a great foundation for your future life in music. So um finding the time to dedicate yourself to you know, figuring out what an octave feels like on the violin, on every position, because on the violin, like intonation is is like lifelong, right? Something you just work work on all the time. But if you have a good sense of, for example, what the octave feels like in the first position versus in the eighth position, um, and learning how to shift in a way that is uh, seamless, effortless, how to play in a way that's effortless, that is going to help you when you're older, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um and being able to play scales, I mean, I mean, a lot of these pieces, all of the difficult passages, they're just made up of scales. They're just different scales put together, honestly. Um, so if you can play scales well, then you can play probably half of the difficult passages well, too, you know, um, and double stops to uh, learn how to have good hand shapes and hand forms. Um I remember the first time I had applied double stops to a piece was when I was playing Palludium and Allegro, that last page. Um,
1: Man, you're speaking, you're preaching to the choir. Yeah. All about hand frame.
0: Yep. All about hand frame. Like all that cadenza with all of those double stops, basically. I mean, you're playing them as single notes, but like your hands should not be like all over the place. You're playing double stops. Like you should be able to see different groups of hand, hand shapes and stuff. Um, so that you know that kind of stuff uh practicing technique and having designated time for it i i mean i think it's so important so when i was i would say let's i'm trying to think about like the age range where i really focused on technique i would say 9 to 16 i would say ish yeah i mean of course i continued practicing technique after that too but those were the years where i really i would spend Maybe two hours, you know, doing scales and etudes and working on my vibrato, doing vibrato exercises, all of that kind of stuff. Um, And I went to a summer program called Encore, um, and this was in Ohio. I and I went there since I was nine years old. And those summer programs, they have it feels kind of like boot camp because they have this thing like where we have performance class at eight a.m. So, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I know who right. is right. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, one, you can't warm up, but before you play your piece, you have to play the entire arpeggios, like the entire circle of fifths. Ooh, so you play that's an idea. <laughs> yeah. From C major through everything all the way to G major. So like all the keys in between. Um, so, and we had to like perform that in front of people. So, <laughs> um, that yeah,
1: I, I did that in college. I don't know if I, if I were a professor, I don't know if I,
0: m- yeah, maybe well,
1: if, I don't know if I do that, but time yeah.
0: I, I had to do that. Like, you know, performing in front of people, but that was like, like when I think about my experience at Encore, that was like a very deep impression in my memory. Cause it was like so unique to that particular uh, mm. festival. But um, anyway, my point is like, it's, uh, Skills is very important. <laughs> I guess I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay, great. I, I love that. And um, uh, for for all the books that uh, you know Serena mentioned, I'm going to leave links down in the description below. Yeah. So make sure you um, you go to the podcast notes, click on those links for you to get those copies. I'm a I'm a big believer in self check. I actually love the Opus One, the very first yeah, book. Opus one. Yeah, Opus I did that. Opus One, Dexterity in the left hand. That's like a great left hand exercise, and it's also really cool. Like sometimes the the scale books can be really intimidating like that like carl flesh is not yeah, for we, everybody from the beginning
0: it's like a sea of like black dots right
1: <laughs> exactly and then yeah. there, you know even the parents i'm like wait we have to enforce this upon our child <laughs> so I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like okay and i'm like you know in time in time so yeah. you know i have other you know scale books yeah. that i, that I recommend it's, of it's, course right but the set check for yeah. me is great because if you're not into scales entirely one day they mm-hmm. It it is, you know, it is like a scale like passage. So you are working on broken thirds, you are working on stepwise motion in first position. Exactly. Second, third, fourth, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And yeah. then you start working on, you know, the you know, like the double stops, and then you start, you know, moving the other fingers. Yeah. So I'm I'm a big believer in that also. I think even when I practice that with my students. I've actually I've felt that I've become a better player because I'm practicing with my with students. Them, right? It's just yeah. just that, yeah? yeah. And then it just goes to show that, you know, I had a performance just 2 days ago, you know, I performed like a orchestra concert choir, I was principal mm-hmm. second, whatever. And I was I was telling my students, I just had two rehearsals for this, you know. Yeah. And you know, you just have to kind of know your know your part. You walk in, you do your you do your thing, you do your business, and then you walk out and then, you know, you live your life and then, you know, whatever happens out of life. You just kind of have to like continue to stay focused
0: exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually speaking of A2s, there's one more that i would like to add and this is something because you asked if technique is you know something that's ongoing or if there's anything that i'm still working on now mm-hmm. and i thought i just wanted to point out like actually several months ago so actually before i start the way my fingers are it, my pinky is like extra short
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. man. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: yeah, I know, right? Like <laughs> you're so
1: sorry. Like t- I'm the opposite. Like my, f- I mean, if you, if you, I'll leave a link of the YouTube interview, like down in the podcast below, so that way you, you know anyone who's just listening, you can uh, click it. But I'm the same. I mean, I, my my pinky's a little bit a little bit higher than yours. Yeah.
0: You like but I have I have big sure.
1: hands. You know, I'm like six one, so I have like large pants, okay. You know, hands.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: But, but yeah. what's great about your fingers is that they're like they're long and they're skinny.
0: They're long and skinny, right? Right. But like my pinky is like super short. It doesn't even reach this line here. So it's like kind of short. And then my middle finger is actually very long. And I don't know, it's just, yeah, it's like when I was young, like, for example, like the C on the A string is always high or F on the D string, like my every time I put down my second, my middle finger, it just like creeps up high. So the intonation was like, a. I mean, it always, it's treacherous. A, yeah, I know. All musicians can say that. I mean, all string players, I mean. But um, anyway, my point is just several months ago, I was like, okay, I got to do something about this pinky because I have, I had this like bad habit where that whenever there was like a high note and important note, I would use my third finger to go for it to add that nice vibrato and, you know, really milk it and things uh, like
1: that. That extra juice, the finger pad, just like yeah, gives exactly. it that extra thing. Yeah,
0: you that, right? But I was also thinking like, wouldn't it be nice if i could just play these notes with my pinky so that i could still stay in form? like because if i have to play a high note with this then i'm basically my hand tape is like this right you're I'm stretching yeah stretching, and this would be so much more comfortable so then i found this um pinky exercise by Guff for Love, and i can i don't know if you're familiar with it and i can send it To you if you want to link it later please
1: do yeah yeah there
0: are six pinky exercises in that set and um basically i would just really go for it i would play through all six exercises and that takes about uh between 15 to 20 minutes to play through it Hmm. and it's basically the whole exercise it's like you're practicing pinky independence and strength and you're playing scales with like 34343434 three, four, three, four, like that kind of stuff um and <clears throat> after you play through all of it you realize like this muscle right here it's very sore
1: <laughs> oh yeah like yeah. yeah if i you know you compared to like yeah, this yeah. man is like you know, it's like you're like body, it's like you're bodybuilding lifting with your left hand. And I actually it's funny it's funny we're talking about this because I I emphasize that like one day when you're practicing that pinky, you know, the fourth finger, you're gonna have a lot of more muscle here. I mean, you you look at like Yu Wong's hand and you see like the massive muscle that comes out yeah. of the pinky. It's yeah, like
0: wow. Yeah. yeah, I know. It really, it's like bodybuilder fingers, I know. Um yeah, totally. So and and after doing that for about a year now I would or yeah about a year I would say it's helped me tremendously in the sense that my hands are so much more relaxed because in my pieces now my my fourth finger is so much more just it's just a lot stronger and even when I, if, even if it's not like a high note but even if it's just like a fast run or something I feel like my other fingers can relax a little more now that we're sharing the load right with the pinky everything is evenly balanced my hand is more balanced my vibrato is a lot more is looser and that it you know it helps in so many ways and also it just feels so much more effortless and i think with violin technique you should always go for whatever feels more effortless that's always the better route to go
1: and i also i want to add on top of that you know not to kind of like you know put an asterisk but like you there of course, when someone say to play with zero tension, that's also not possible, right? There will be some sort of tension, right? But I mean, the idea behind, I guess, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea behind what you're saying is like, make the extra effort to prepare that pinky. So when you just have a lot more variety, more options, when you're, so that way the technique and the and the musicality can really be in sync. So you're not totally. like suffering one from the other.
0: Right. You don't ever want the technique to keep you from expressing something musically. You actually want the technique to be your best tool to express all of these things. Um, and for me personally, this might not be true for everybody, but for me, because my pinky is short and weak, uh, strengthening that put my hand in balance, I could do so many more things. Um, so that was a really cool discovery that I recently, um, no, on. that's, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I think
1: it, it also just goes to show that even like professional violins like you and even violins who have been on the performance circuit for many years, they're still constantly trying to improve like oh an God. aspect. Life-long of their needed, it's, it's a <laughs> lifelong student. Yeah. And yeah. like, like intonation, right? Like intonation. <laughs> I always tell my students that like, if someone says they have perfect intonation, they should just leave. And yeah. they should oh, <laughs> just like, <laughs>
0: Don't. You know what I mean?
1: Like, don't get me started, right? <laughs> but because because the moment you start getting comfortable with the idea that you are good in intonation is when you start declining. Yeah, and that's you, when
0: you stop listening.
1: That's when you stop listening intently, right? Yeah. And I play, you know, like you said, like your your teacher played with you, you know, yeah. growing up. Yeah. I play with my students too because all
0: the time, yeah.
1: Because it's just like trying to help them understand what a tartini tone is, how is the resonance supposed to sound on like a third finger on a like, why is this finger not ringing, you know, like, those are some of the things that I teach and some of the things that I teach on my YouTube channel as well. And also leave a link down in the podcast notes just to kind of help students, you know, get the most value out of this podcast. But as we run out of time, Serena, I wish I could nerd out for like another hour because this is it. (laughs) Yeah, but I do want to help our audience out to leave with some practical tips after today's interview. So what are some practical tips that any violinist of any of any level can take out of this?
0: Sure, um, practical tips. I guess I have several that I could think of right now. Um, I think when you're practicing, always quality over quantity. So um, let's say you want to do, four hours of practicing. Um, If you are not feeling focused at all, then then it's more effective to do two hours of really concentrated work than four hours of not concentrated work. Um, Because when you're practicing, you are reprogramming your brain. So whatever you repeat, whatever you do, Um, that's going to stay in there. So if you are practicing four hours kind of mindlessly, you are building a lot of bad habit, um, which will take even longer to unlearn. Um, So you rather practice the right way, but a shorter amount of time. Um, And I will also say it's helpful to kind of break up your practicing in a way. I mean, not like, okay, five minutes, five minutes, but like it may be one hour, and then take a break and then another two hours or something, you know, so that you can stay focused. It's not, just make sure that you're not ever really practicing just for the sake of putting in the hours, but you're practicing because you want to play better that you are programming your brain in a way that uh, is the right way is the way that um, yeah, it can really affect your playing when you're performing. Um, so that's kind of like a, practice tip that I have learned over the years that this is really important you know if you play I would I remember when I was younger like if a passage is out of tune I would just play it over and over until it's in tune right and then the first time I get in tune I'm like hey great I can move on but then what happens is like you play this passage five times four times four of the five times is out of tune and the fifth time is in tune you move on but what happens with your brain is that you actually are repeating the bad unsuccessful times more times than when it was right. You know, so you want to try to overwrite that and um, repeat the successful experiences <clears throat> more so than the failed experiences. Um,
1: I love the word that you used. I love I love how you said experiences. Yeah, like the experience of feeling the the passage in your hand, right. the experience of what it sounds like in tune. I think that's a great word.
0: Absolutely, as uh, practicing is really about experiencing and feeling what everything you're doing really is about. It's kind of taking it apart a little bit. Um, and I think my other tip would be for those of you that maybe experience nerves when you're performing. And I will say that this is something that I always, always feel. Like now, today, if I were to perform, I will feel nerves. Like it doesn't matter how many times I've performed in my lifetime, uh, nerves will, is, will always be there with me. But one of, uh, so my teacher, it's at Perlman. When I was studying with him at Juilliard, my favorite advice that he gave me was that when you're nervous, let the music be your distraction for your nerves. So instead of thinking about, oh my God, I'm nervous, and you keep like zoning in on the fact that you're nervous and you can't focus on the music, think about when you're on stage and you're feeling shaky and you're feeling nervous, try to be as involved as you can in the music itself, try to play the most beautiful phrase you can think of. And the more into it, like music will actually help you get less nervous because the less attention you give the nerves, it just kind of like paces out a little bit, at least, you know, it just lessens a little bit. So um, the more uh, involved you are in your music, then, um, you know, it's gonna feel a lot more natural. So let your mu- let the music be your distraction for nerves is another really great advice for performing. I think, yeah.
1: Friends, I want to uh, thank Serena Huang for being on the Violin Podcast for sharing her wisdom, sharing her her experience with the with the Indianapolis competition, and for for people who want to get to know you a little more um, outside of this podcast, where can people find you?
0: Yeah, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram uh instagram is just my name serena huang and facebook is i believe is serena huang violinist um or you can just search me on facebook um yeah
1: friend. and of course i'll leave um links in the podcast show notes for people who want to get to learn more a little more about serena so mm-hmm. Serena, this has been awesome i wish we can have this interview in person one day
0: yeah and <laughs>
1: um you know that's that's my goal that's my goal with all my guests that we can have like you know, maybe like a round table of like violence geeking out about certain stuff <laughs> in person. Oh, so. having
0: play thirds. Very- <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. But, yeah. I don't want to overwhelm our audience too much, but, <laughs> but um, Serena, this is amazing. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having yeah. me.